I've taken for my text Joel chapter 2, verse 12. There the prophet declares, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. This day of prayer and fasting has been called by the session of the Puritan Reformed Church for the following stated reasons. Number one, to confess our own sins, those of our family and those of our church and nation. Number two, to acknowledge our absolute dependence now and for all eternity upon the grace and mercy of God. Number three, to pour forth our praise and thanksgiving to God for His many benefits to us as His people, all material benefits, but especially all those spiritual benefits which have been graciously bestowed upon us in Christ our Savior. And number four, to implore and beseech our God earnestly that He would glorify His most holy name in ushering in a third reformation by means of our fervent worship, secret, family, and by means of our preaching and publishing near and abroad the gospel of Jesus Christ and the biblical truth concerning a covenanted reformation, by means of our exposing the sins and errors of the times, by means of our calling all men to turn from their wicked ways and to embrace Jesus Christ, and by means of our ceaseless prayer for the peace, purity, and unity of Christ's church in the truth throughout the world. Dear ones, as you have been called this day to a solemn time of prayer and fasting, so likewise were God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah called through the prophecy of Joel, as we find in Joel 2.15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. For in times of impending judgment, in times of great affliction, and in times of a coveted, coveted reformation, God has often driven His people to avail themselves of His mercy by means of the biblical ordinance of fasting. And I remind you that it is not fasting in and of itself that has any meritorious value in securing God's mercy. But rather, fasting is an outward sign of the gracious inward work of a sincere humiliation before God and of an earnest acknowledgement that we are utterly destitute and helpless apart from the mercy of God given to us in Christ Jesus. 
You see, fasting is a visible picture of the unalterable truth spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. Without me, ye can do nothing. At such a time as this, in particular, dear ones, we pour contempt upon all boasting in ourselves, all spiritual or intellectual pride, and all our works of righteousness, and we cling only to the Lord Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. He is our only hope. He is our only help. We cling to Him. And we not only do so now, but the attitude of heart that we have now we should carry with us every single day of our lives. The prophet Joel gives to us in chapter 1 an account of a devastating pestilence of locusts and various types of caterpillars and worms which the Lord sent upon the land there in Judah in order to drive the people from their spiritual apathy and apostasy. The crops, the vineyards, the trees were stripped of their foliage and their fruit. They had become so desolated, in fact, by this nation of locusts, caterpillars, and worms that even the offerings and the sacrifices in the temple of the Lord had dwindled to almost nothing because there was almost nothing to bring to Him. God's controversy in this prophetic message of Joel is with His people. It's not with simply the nations out there. It is with His own people. And the plague and the prophet alike foretell even a greater desolation that will befall them if they do not repent from an invading army of men that will completely desolate what the locusts and the worms and the insects have left. The army will completely decimate. However, before that happens, The Lord's mercy is declared in this prophecy in that He brings His judgment upon them in stages rather than all at once. How merciful and kind of God to bring His judgment in stages, to give His people opportunity to repent and to turn from their wicked ways. First, God sends a nation of insects But second, God prophesies that He will send a nation of invading warriors. God pleads with His people through His prophet to heed the warning, to repent of their sin and error and to flee to the God of their salvation for mercy. Dear ones, God is no less merciful to us today For His gracious warnings are likewise brought to us in stages. And at each stage, the Lord graciously extends His invitation of mercy to repent, to turn to Him, to fast, to weep, 
to mourn that we may enjoy the blessings of the Lord. Consider for just a moment the various stages of God's judgment evident all around us. First, God sins to a nation, rulers, who institute laws completely contrary to his commandments. A civil government who legalizes idolatry, covenant-breaking, Sabbath-breaking, abortion, and immorality of every kind. In effect, the civil government has legalized tyranny over the church and over the conscience of people and violated many of the moral rights that God has given. And the civil government has legalized apostasy in leading a nation away from God, the living God. You see, there was corrupt civil leaders in our land and unfaithful ministers in our churches are God's rod upon our backs for choosing that which is evil over that which is righteous. For choosing that which is in error over that which is the truth. Generally speaking, the rulers in a church and state simply reflect the people that they represent. But God's judgment upon us does not stop there. That's a stage. But it does not stop there if we have eyes to see, for there is also the stage of God's judgment that issues in various national catastrophes and disasters. For example, the ice storm earlier this year. The severe flooding last year in Manitoba. The epidemic proportion of various viruses and diseases. These, dear ones, are not coincidences. These are not simply natural or economic laws that are being played out. And now we have the opportunity again to repent because we are now threatened with the possibility of economic collapse around the year 2000. God continues to give us warning signs. Will they be heeded? Will the nation turn to the living God? Will the church repent before it's too late? The God who judged the nations of old for their idolatry, tyranny, and covenant-breaking is the same God who yet judges the nations and pleads with them to turn to His mercy, lest they be finally destroyed. However, the nations and churches of today appear as deaf to the message of repentance as were the nations and the church of Judah of old. Apathy in religion is such a comfortable place for people to be. It makes little or no demand upon our desires, upon our wealth, upon our relationships, or upon our work. An apathetic religion, dear ones, is a religion in which I can be at ease. 
But listen to the word of the Lord. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Amos 6.1 Woe upon them. When tyranny and apostasy are rampant in a nation and in the churches of that nation, and yet those who profess to be Christians, who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ, when they are at ease with that situation, they have become a part of the problem. And God's judgment rests upon the land and the church, especially for their sakes. Because they know what's right. They know what's wrong. And yet they have consented. They have tolerated. They have not spoken against. They have remained at ease and in a comfortable situation. While it appears there's a fire consuming the whole nation or the church of Christ. Or as judgment seems to be approaching, they sit silently and do not sound the trumpet and warn the people of God and especially upon ministers. The seriousness of this judgment falls, especially upon those who have been called to warn the people. This was the message to God's people in Judah, and it's His message to us as well. With that overview... Let us consider the first main point from our text. And that is the gracious invitation of the Lord. The gracious invitation of the Lord, wherein it is stated in Joel 2.12, Turn ye even to me. The Lord declares, in effect, If you would avoid the fatal consequences of my righteous judgment, hear how I plead with you to turn to me for mercy now. For I will heal your backsliding and I will forgive your sin. What more can I do to demonstrate my mercy to all those who sincerely repent? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I delight in showing mercy. Turn to me. Hear me. Herein we find the righteous judgment that falls upon sinful man greatly aggravated. For not only is man an avowed violator of God's righteous law, but furthermore, he shows contempt for the gracious invitations of God's mercy by refusing them through his rationalization, first of all. He refuses God's invitation of mercy through his own rationalization. I'm not really such a great sinner, he says. Look at all the good things I have done. What do I need to repent of? Or he refuses the mercy extended to him through his negligence. He proclaims, I'm not really hostile to the Lord. I just don't think you have to become such a zealot for the cause of Christ. I think you can have Christ and the pleasures and comforts of this world as well. And so he neglects to take advantage of all of the means of grace and the invitations to come 
to Christ. Or man refuses these invitations through his procrastination. There's so many demands upon my life right now, I just can't take the time to follow Christ in every part of my life. I just don't have the time. After all, God's mercy will be just as available tomorrow as it is today. And so I've got to take care of the urgent things today. And so if God's extending His mercy to me now, it'll be there tomorrow. Or man refuses by his outright hostility. I will not turn to God to avail myself of His mercy. For you see, dear ones, it is one thing to sin against a holy God, but it is an infinitely greater affront and aggravation of that sin to slap the Lord in the face, as it were, while His hand is extended in mercy to an undeserving sinner. This is why those nations and churches that have been especially granted a greater measure of light and truth are more accountable. Greater invitations of mercy bring greater degrees of judgment for sliding that mercy. To whom much is given, much is required, says the Lord. And this was especially true of Israel of old. The Lord had chosen Israel to be his bride, and she proved to be an unfaithful bride. She proved to be, in fact, a harlot by committing her spiritual adultery, even in his very presence. Yet he continued to extend to her his invitations of mercy, just as he invites each of you to turn to Him afresh and anew on this day of prayer and fasting. Dear ones, why would you not turn to such a gracious God? What could possibly hold you back from enjoying such communion and fellowship with the living God? Note in verse 13 of chapter 2, the reason given for our turning unto the Lord our God. Why should we turn to the Lord? For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. When we turn from our wicked ways, the Lord says, He will have mercy upon us and repent of the evil that he had planned to send, or that he had prophesied to send. He will respond by removing that calamity, by removing that judgment, just as he did with Nineveh. It's not as though God's decrees change. They are forever settled in heaven. But as a part of God's decrees, when man repents, God has mercy. And when man hardens his heart, God sends his judgment. In other words, sincerely 
Turn to him, for he delights to bestow mercy upon the most vile sinner who is truly repentant. There is no one so sinful that God does not delight to bestow his mercy where there is repentance before him. David prayed in Psalm 86, 3-5, Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. And plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. You see, dear ones, the only question that remains after hearing that invitation is, do you believe God will keep His promise? Is God able to keep His promise? Is God willing to keep His promise? Is God trustworthy and faithful to His Word to keep His promise? The issue ultimately, dear ones, revolves around our faith in God's character and God's power and ability. Do we really, really believe Him or not? You see, dear ones, we don't just conveniently neglect, ignore, procrastinate, or forget to avail ourselves of God's invitations of mercy. We sin by disbelieving. We sin by disbelieving either that we don't need His mercy or by disbelieving that He will give His mercy when we repent. It's an issue of belief or unbelief. It's not a question whether God will be merciful. It's a question of whether we will sincerely repent. Well, let us hear Him and turn to Him today. The second main point. How are we to turn to the Lord? How are we to turn to the Lord? Well, our text tells us, with all your heart. With all your heart. If our turning to the Lord is indeed true and sincere, it will not be a half-hearted turning to Him as if to say, my heart is not really in this, but I'll fast anyway. I'll go through the motions. Everybody else is doing it, whatever. That's a half-hearted turning to the Lord. That's not with all one's heart. But a sincere turning of the Lord will neither be a a conditional turning to Him either. A conditional turning where we exercise, as it were, some right, or we reserve to ourselves a condition in being willing to give up all to follow Him. I'll follow you, Lord, as long as this, or if this happens, or whatever. We bargain with the Lord. But that's not a wholehearted 
turning to the Lord. Nor is this a sincere turning to the Lord when we merely go through the externals in turning to Him. Because that lacks an inward love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's simply going through the motions. We're here bodily, but our heart and our mind are a million place, a million miles away. We're in a different location in spirit, though we may be here bodily. That's a mere external turning to Him. That's not sincere. That's not with all your heart. And finally, to turn to the Lord with all your heart is not a popular turning to Him. By that I mean it's not primarily a matter of following the majority or the crowd so as to have the approval of man. If no one else in this congregation followed and turned to the Lord with all their heart, you have the mind that I will do so. I will serve the Lord. I will give Him my whole heart. These types of turning to God, dear ones, are a sure formula for God turning against us. God's invitation of mercy is extended to all who hear, but the Most High God will not be trifled with. To do so, to trifle with God and with His gracious invitations of mercy is to profane the most holy name of God. You know, as we consider even the reformation that occurred in Scotland in 1638 through 1649, in which there were many attainments to biblical religion reached, it has been the testimony of men like Samuel Rutherford that they were not patient enough. They did not suffer long enough to teach, to instruct, to persuade the people before taking the covenant. But many simply wandered in, swore the covenant without realizing all of the implications of what they were doing. They were ignorant to a large degree of what they were doing. And it is therefore no wonder that it, within ten years that a nation falls away from the Lord. We do not follow the crowd, even when the crowd is moving the right direction. We do not follow the crowd unless our heart, soul, mind is completely devoted to the Lord. That's mere formalism and externalism. You see, dear ones, it is certainly a grievous sin not to covenant with God when one enters marriage. But it is a far more heinous sin to covenant with God in marriage when you do so with reservations or when you do so just to gain the approval of man. And likewise, it is a grievous sin not to sign or to swear a biblical covenant in a faithful nation or in a faithful church, but it is even more grievous to sign or to swear that covenant for the wrong reasons to swear falsely 
The Lord graciously invites us to turn to Him today. But let us not toy with the Almighty. Let us do so with all our heart. Let there be no more serious business that we take up than this. Now note, under this second main point, that we are to turn to the Lord with our whole heart. Note the explicit ways that the prophet declares to us how we turn to God with all our heart. Three ways. By fasting, by weeping, and by mourning. Let us briefly consider these. First of all, by fasting. When a people collectively become serious and earnest about turning to God and turning away from their sin, for you can't turn to God without turning away from your sin. When they become serious about that, there will be manifested in their midst a desire to humble themselves by such outward and visible means as fasting. Or, if you look in the next verse, chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord speaks of rending the garment, another outward means that was used in that culture to demonstrate great mourning and grieving and sorrowing, lamentation, woe, to rend the garment. But God says, I don't want you simply to rend the garment, I want you to rend the heart. Because it's the fast that ought to say something about an inward work of God's grace in our heart. The outward sign is meaningless. It's vanity. It's futile. It's an abomination to God unless there is in our life the desire to humble ourselves before God. Unless we are acknowledging that we are absolutely weak and frail and helpless in our own strength. And that is only to the Lord God that we can gain such strength. It is only He whom we can trust. Then our fasting is absolutely futile. You see, dear ones, in those times, the times in which the biblical writers wrote, their deep humiliation of heart manifested itself in outward signs and actions. Another way in which was demonstrated a mourning and grieving was to clothe oneself in sackcloth and ashes or to shave one's beard or one's hair from his head. All of these were outward demonstrations of great mourning and lamentation. You see, a genuine turning to God will evidence itself by a willingness to sacrifice the pleasures and the comforts of life. Genuine sorrow for sin should not be secretly hidden in the recesses of our heart, but should be indicated by such outward means as fasting. And it should be indicated by our words and our actions every day. 
that we are greatly humbled before the Lord our God. And we do not invoke the mere ritualism of the Jews or the Romish church in fasting, but rather we follow the pattern of Scripture in genuinely sorrowing and sincerely acknowledging our own helplessness to rescue ourselves and turning only to the Lord our God. The second indication of that is given by the Lord that one has turned to him with all his heart is by weeping. A sincere turning to God and away from our sin will also manifest itself in brokenness and contriteness of heart. Now, I know some people are certainly more prone to tears than others. But if the tears, dear ones, are not present, at least the brokenness of heart that leads to those tears of repentance must be present. When the Lord calls His people to weeping, this is not a call for professional weepers or professional mourners to simply squeeze out tears out of their eyes like some movie star. That is not what is being invoked here. This comes from a heart that is filled with sadness over having offended the Lord our God having shunned and avoided his invitations to come to him, there is sincere repentance and grief. Dear ones, if we have ever known the grief and sorrow of losing a child, a mother or father, or a brother or sister, if we have known in our hearts that gripping sorrow, that issues in tears over the loss, the mourning over the loss. How much more, dear ones, we should know the sorrow of losing communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ due to our coldness of faith and due to our hardness of heart and due to the perfunctory manner in which we worship the Lord of glory. In Zechariah 12.10, the Lord speaks of a time when Israel will again repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will turn to God and they will mourn as one mourns over the loss of a son. That is sincere mourning. That is the kind of mourning that God calls us to on a day like this and to provoke ourselves to these times in our family and in our secret worship to mourn, to grieve over our sin. For dear ones, when we truly understand that Jesus Christ went to that cross and He died in your place, because you sent Him there. It was your sin and mine that sent Him there. 
We have every right to mourn and to grieve over our sin. Look what it cost our Savior. If we do not really care, if we do not weep, if we, in our own heart, have no affection or or if there is nothing that churns within us at all, if we are not affected at all, if we continue to ignore, neglect, procrastinate, profane, and refuse His daily offers of mercy and communion, then how can our turning to God be with all of our heart? We find the account in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and following, of a woman who is called simply a sinner. She came into the room where Christ was. She brought an alabaster box of ointment. She stood behind the Lord. And she began weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears and to dry his feet with her hair and to anoint him with the perfume. And when the Pharisee in whose house Jesus sat and ate saw this, he thought to himself, this man cannot be a prophet of God. Because if he was, he'd know that this woman was a great sinner. And the Lord took the opportunity and said to this Pharisee, whose name was Simon, I have something to ask you. I have something to say unto you, Simon. And he said, say on, Master. The Lord said there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore which of them will love him most. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto them, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Do you really understand that your sin and yours alone, whether there had been sin committed by anyone else on the face of this earth, would have sent Jesus Christ to suffer as much as he suffered? 
Do you understand how great a sinner you are? That it would cost the life of the Son of God to rescue you. Because if you understand how great a sinner you are, you will weep much. You will rejoice much in the salvation which God has granted to you through Jesus Christ. Psalm 126.5 says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Are you sowing in tears? Are you sowing with a broken and contrite heart before the Lord your God? Or is your religion very, very formal? Is your relationship to God very, very distant? Or do you know Him as your beloved Savior? The third way in which we evidence that we turn to God with all our heart is by mourning. That which characterizes a day of prayer and fasting is that of mourning and grieving over sin. However, that should not be limited to simply one particular day. But that sorrow, dear one, should characterize our whole life. What we feel on this day, what we experience on this day, should be that which we experience by God's grace every day of our life. Dear ones, we cannot possibly take sin seriously if we do not mourn over it. If we do not mourn over the effects of sin in our life, in the life of our family, in the life of our children, in the life of our husband or our wife, in the life of our church, in the life of this nation, we cannot take sin seriously if we do not mourn and grieve over sin. In fact, David, even speaking of the transgressions of others, in Psalm 119, verse 136, says, Rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. Because others keep not the law of God. They blaspheme God. They, they profane His holy day. In all the other ways, rivers of water run down my eyes. That's grieving and mourning, not only over our own sin, but over the sin of others. And there can be no mercy enjoyed unless there is a genuine mourning over the sin we have committed. Why don't we enjoy more of the mercy of God in our life? Why don't we experience His joy in our life? Could it be because we have not learned to mourn over our sin, to grieve over our sin, as we should? Genuine mourning and grieving issues in the reception of, of God's mercy, delighting in Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, the Lord Jesus said, for they shall be comforted. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
should be the cry upon each of our lips. The last point from the sermon today is this. When are we to turn to the Lord? When? Our text says, Therefore also now saith the Lord. Not tomorrow, not next week, now saith the Lord. There is no legitimate reason to delay your turning to the Lord. Whether you are turning to Him in order to be united to Him for salvation, or whether you are turning to Him to renew communion with Him, there is no reason at all why you should delay turning to Him now. For each of us should be renewing our covenant vows with the Lord our God, even now. A postponement in turning to God with all our heart right now only aggravates our sin against His gracious invitation. hastens God's judgment upon us for resisting Him because God doesn't buy our excuses of forgetfulness, of procrastination, of negligence. We may be able to sell it to other people. The elders might even be deceived. But God will not be mocked. Turn to Him today, dear ones. However, if we do heed His gracious invitation right now, today, Joel 2.14 says, Who knoweth if He will return and repent and leave a blessing behind Him? See, it's the hope is put before us. If we turn to the Lord today, Joel says, who knows, God may repent of the calamity that, he's, that He has predicted would fall upon us. And He will leave behind Him a blessing. Is it not the Holy Spirit that we need more than anything else? Is it not that zeal of the Lord which the Holy Spirit engenders in us? Is it not His power and His strength that we need more than anything else? His courage, His wisdom, His knowledge which comes from the Holy Spirit? Is it not the faith, even the faith of a mustard seed, whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ? Does that not come from the Holy Spirit? In Joel 2.28, is promised the blessings of the Holy Spirit. In the last days, certainly fulfilled in the day of Pentecost, but we are still living in those same last days. We need the Holy Spirit. It is not by might, it is not by power, it is by thy Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. If Reformation is to come to this nation, if Reformation is to come to our families, if Reformation is to come to our church and all the churches in this nation and in this world, it will come by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we must avail ourselves of the invitations 
of God's mercy as He calls out to us today. As Moses declared to the covenanters of old, so I declare to you, covenanters today, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, that thou mayest obey his voice, that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Please stand with me in prayer. Thou art the same God who did speak to thy people through the prophecy of Joel. No, Lord our God, thou dost speak to us, thy people today. Today is the day to turn to the Lord our God with all our heart. To turn to the Lord our God by means of fasting and tears and mourning. To turn to the Lord our God right now. We do pray, Father, that that those in our midst, even from the youngest to the eldest, would turn to Thee, that all within the sound of my voice would turn to Thee and would weep and cry and mourn over our sin. That, Lord God, Thou would leave behind us a blessing, not only to us, but to our posterity for a thousand generations. We do pray, our God and our Father, that Thou would show us mercy for Christ's sake, for there is no good thing within us. And, O Lord, our God, we deserve every affliction that Thou dost bring into our life, and we deserve infinitely more for our sin. But Thou dost bring even Thy judgments in stages that we might repent. We pray, Heavenly Father, that Thou would open to us, even now, Thy merciful throne of grace, that we might repent as Thy people. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.